Welcome everyone to the Law and Society podcast brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. The City Law School's Law and Society podcast is co-hosted by me, Dr. Sabrina Germain, Senior Lecturer at the City Law School, and me, Dr. Adrienne Young, also Senior Lecturer at the City Law School. Each episode, we will be interviewing a guest to speak about their expertise on issues relating to the law, the rights stemming from the law, and most importantly, how context matters to all this. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the City Law School's Law and Society podcast with me, Dr. Sabrina Germain. And me, Dr. Adrian Young. Welcome to episode one, where we will be exploring theories of law and conception of justice with Professor Luke Mason of the University of Westminster. Hi, Luke. Hi, Sabrina. Luke, would you mind introducing yourself for our listeners? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on uh, your podcast. It's a real honor to be here. So, uh, yeah, my name is Luke Mason. I'm a professor of jurisprudence at the University of Westminster, where in my spare time there, I'm also head of the law school. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant to have this opportunity to share some ideas with your students. Thanks so much for joining us, Luke. We really appreciate it. And we really hope that all of our students uh, learn a lot from your expertise in in the areas that we're going to ask you. So we like to start off all of our episode asking our guests a big question. How would you define the concept of law? Okay, so I think it's right to start with this question at all times. I think it's really brave to start with such a big question. Um, and I remember when I spent many, many years uh, teaching jurisprudence, to, which is the philosophy of law, uh, to undergrad students, I used to start off by asking them this question in the first session and used to get them to write down one sentence. And then we'd go around and get everyone to read out this uh, sentence they'd written. And sometimes it was hundreds of students. And the, the variety of answers that would come back was, was always amazing. But the, it was always the same variety. When, when you'd, each year you'd get the same six or seven different answers. Some people defined law as um, a kind of structure of power. Some people uh, defined law as somehow related to justice and fairness. Some people defined law in terms of its connection to an institutional system of rules. Some people defined law in terms of its connection to a profession. So like law as in the legal profession. Um, some people defined it in some kind of broader political way, which was maybe more difficult to pin down as a, um, as a, as a family resemblance concept, an idea which is kind of linked by some uh, core elements. And then people defined it in some other interesting way, somehow connected to injustice, um, and sometimes connected to things like economics and money, which was always interesting. And I think all of those things are true. Law is all of those things. It's, uh, it's a way of organizing the world. It's a way of understanding the world. Um, it's a way of organizing a, a profession. Um, and it's a way of interacting with each other. Uh, it's all of those things in one go. But I think if I had to define what law is, trying to sum up those things and separate the legal elements from the non-legal elements, I think I would say that law is a way of knowing. Law is a way of understanding things that is different to other ways of understanding the world or ourselves. So if we compare law to its close cousins in terms of things we study, um, economics, sociology, um, politics, uh, language, and I think what makes law different to those things is it's a different way of, of understanding. It's understanding through the use of rules, through the use of obligations, through the use of certain values and principles. 
And those are things we encounter in lots of other areas of the world, right? So we encounter rules when we're interacting with each other. Even in this podcast, we're not interrupting each other. You know, there are some kinds of rules, even though we didn't lay down the law beforehand. We, we, we know that those exist. But law is a very specific way of understanding the world using those things, which we already have at our disposal. So it's a way of understanding the world uh, in what we might call an, a normative mode. So rather than understanding how people interact with each other, we understand how people should interact with each other. We look at how they maybe understand their own obligations, their own visions of what should happen. And that's a very specific thing uh, to law. So I think if there's something that really unifies all of our different visions of law, all of which are, I think are equally valid, it's that specific mode of knowing, um, which is, um, I think it's quite a, an, an emancipatory thing when we're talking about it through students. It can be quite empowering because what you realize when you understand that law is about a way of knowing is that all students of law have this way of knowing, that they can understand the world in a way that non-law students can't understand. So although law students might have learned a lot of laws, that's really just part of the training to know other things, to understand the world in a very specific way, to understand how it's organized in a very human way. So we couldn't have law in the context of, of robots or maybe of other animals who don't understand in that, uh, that rule-based way. We only have it th through this kind of human vision. And that law students and lawyers more generally are experts in using that kind of knowledge. So yeah, coming back, I guess, to the question, how would I define the concept of law? I would describe it as a very specific kind of knowledge, a normative form of knowledge. One thing I would say is that's not necessarily a standard answer. It's not an answer you'll find in many books. Um, but I, I think it's a way of bringing together all of the, com the competing visions of law uh, which exist, which seem to be absolutely at odds with each other, seem to not sit right with each other at all. If we could all see them as different variants of ways of understanding this kind of normativity, rule-based uh, vision, I, I think it makes sense of them. So, th so that's how I would define it. I'm sure you'll get lots of other uh, interesting answers to that question as well. Probably won't get that one again. I mean, I've definitely heard a lot of students and lots of people say, you know, it's about power structures, all of the things that you mentioned. So, um, you know, that's definitely valid. But I think that what you've said is also really, really um, interesting. And it's it's a different but really um, salient way to kind of think about it. Um, I wonder if we could maybe then ask you what your opinion is on the relationship between law and the rule of law. Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. So the law is is a political idea, right? Law. So is, is a political idea. It has a kind of ideological content, uh, of course, uh, at certain times. It, just as you said before, um, Adrian, when, when we're talking about uh, law with students, they'll often talk about power and things, and that makes law a political thing. But law doesn't have to be a political thing. Law, as I said before, can be a, a way of knowing in all kinds of different contexts, although with political ramifications. It doesn't have to be a political thing. On the other hand, the rule of law is a political idea. The rule of law is a political ideology about how we should organize a constitutional state. So the, the rule of law is, I think, part of a, an overlapping, not entirely coherent series of values which dominates liberal constitutional thinking in the West, uh, which overlaps somewhat with constitutionalism, with democracy, uh, with representative uh, bodies, with certain other institutions. Um, and the rule of law is about, I would say, two things. It's a way in which um, legislation operates, that it operates through general principles which are knowable by people, 
and it, and it also um, kind of connotes the idea that people who are working within the or under the auspices of the state are equally subject to those general rules. So the, the rule of law is kind of a, uh, an overarching political ideology about how we should best uh, govern our society. In a way, it's not entirely linked to law itself, although there is, there is a link, of course, because rules and law are linked. And law is a much broader idea to the rule of law. We could talk about the rule of law maybe with, for one week within constitutional theory, and that would probably be enough for most law students and for most lawyers. I don't think we ever have enough time to talk about the nature of law generally. Law is a massive thing. Law is an incredibly exciting thing, an area of debate and question. The rule of law can, of course, be questioned, but it's, it's a small ideological uh, component of a large number of values which, uh, which, which govern our political discourse. I think what, what is interesting and where they do overlap is that law and the rule of law are both used um, as kind of loaded concepts that people will say, oh, this is against the rule of law, or this is in uh, the interest of the rule of law. Whereas what they really want to say is, this is something I think is right. And it's used as a way, just as we say things are democratic or fair and things, it's used as a way of somehow bolstering an argument without any additional information. And I think law is also used in that way, but it's used in a slightly, in a slightly different way because you, you need to give more information when you're talking about legality and law than when you simply talk about the rule of law. I think it's a much more... Um, I think it's a much less subtle concept, the rule of law. And again, I think that's probably the opposite um, answer to that which most people would give, where they would say, well, law is, you know, it's just a question of legality, whereas rule of law is a much more complex political question with lots of nuance. Of course it is, but I think law is a, is, is a broader thing. And I, I don't think it's any coincidence that probably in our conversation now we'll go on to talk much more about law rather than the rule of law. Uh, because the, the, the question on the rule of law, yeah, it's interesting, but do we really want to revisit our constitutional law uh, seminars from our first year of our law degree every week? Probably, probably not. No, definitely not. And this is not a not 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 that forum for it. But I think that that's a really um, interesting way of thinking about it. And I was definitely thinking, what do you really mean by that? But no, it, that's exactly you know, it's exactly what what you said. It's very clear. It's it's totally different. I think that's really interesting. Thanks, Luke. Yeah, interesting and, and controversial, uh, Luke. Um, so um, we know that law does not exist in a vacuum. And often uh, we support, uh, we see it support the social order or even as a tool to regulate or reduce inequalities. But how should we understand the relationship that law has with other academic discipline uh, disciplines according to you? Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting question. Um, so I think... In a way, it links back to the question that you asked at the very beginning, or at least my um, sketch of an answer to it, uh, where I said law is a very specific way of, of knowing the world. And, and I think what we sometimes miss um, when we study law as students is that when we study contract law or tort law or, or anything, any, any doctrinal area of law, so we might call it specialist area of law, is we're really studying that thing just from the perspective of someone who can use a rule-based perspective on that thing. So we're studying, when we study contracts, for example, we're studying a, a rule-based analysis of exchanges and promises. Right? That's not the only way we could understand the, the process of contracting and exchanging. That there are literally thousands of ways we could understand it. So 
I think everyone would accept that as true, right? They, they, it's not simply through understanding contract law that we understand how we choose what uh, record player we buy to be kind of trendy hipsters listening to vinyl, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right? That contract law can't explain that thing, but it can explain some of the reasons we rely on the tool of contract to achieve that outcome, right? But so this kind of leading into an answer to the question is if we want to understand things, these phenomena, which law purports to help us understand, we have no chance unless we also embrace the idea that other perspective, other modes of knowing give us an insight into these things. Um, That, for example, if we wanted to understand uh, the the buying of hi-fi equipment, I don't know why I chose that example, um, we would also probably want to look at culture related to music and consumption of music and the, the meaning of music and its relationship with um, standard contractual forms and whether we think those things are captured properly and copyright and all kinds of other things, some of which are legal and some of which are definitely not legal. But, but none of those things on their own would give us a real insight into those things. And once we understand that law only operates within this kind of web of different ways of knowing and different ways of acting, we can, we can use a kind of a selection of those different perspectives to better understand uh, law, the processes governed by law, and those other perspectives themselves. So we could use legal perspectives to help us better understand, for example, the consumption of music, but we can also understand sociological uh, perspectives on the consumption of music to help us better understand the operation of, for example, contract law. Um, I, I think this is, when, when you explain it in that way, it becomes a non-controversial perspective. I think one thing that lawyers are rightly worried about sometimes is that when we look at things from a non-legal perspective, it can kind of crowd out law because it's very ephemeral, right? It almost looks like it's almost not there, right? It's a non-tangible thing. It's just a perspective. It's a way of nuancing or understanding of something which is going on outside of legal exchanges to some extent. And I think it's right that lawyers are worried about that. But what the way to respond to that is not to exclude other academic disciplines. It's precisely to say, no, the value that law brings is through the perspective that it allows you to have on these phenomena. And then when you can combine those perspectives with other things, it gives you a whole new range of viewpoints and levels of understanding. And of course, what that allows you to do then is to take non-legal perspectives on legal truisms. So that from from a legal perspective within a particular contract system, for example, there are certain things which are by definition true, right? That contracting parties have legal personhood and that certain people can make contracts and certain people can't and and so on and so forth. There are certain consequences of breaches of contract. There are certain things which define breaches themselves. But in order to think in a legal way through those rules, you have to almost embrace them. You, You can disagree with them, but you have to embrace them to think through them allowing yourself the distance to look at them from an economic perspective or a sociological perspective or even a literary perspective, just writing a story about law, for example, allows you to step outside of that legal viewpoint while still um, taking on board the idea that you have some special insight as a legally trained person. Um, I think one of the really interesting things about this question is it's not very common for non-lawyers to embrace the critical perspectives that lawyers bring. They will often want lawyers to come in and give them a very doctrinal perspective on things. But of course, we know that there are non-doctrinal visions of of law. We can understand law from a critical perspective using our legal methods. So using how things should be or how things might be. And just trying to think, well, what is it that legal perspectives bring? What is it that non-legal perspectives bring? And how we can combine those? Well, it opens up the world to us as lawyers and opens up the world to 
non-lawyers in lots of interesting and creative ways. This brings me right back. I'm going to finish this answer at some point. This brings me back to something you said before, Adrienne, about um, my answer to the first question, when you said that students will often talk about law in relation to power. And one of the reasons I will often resist that is it's, is it's quite interesting because it's a, um, it's a perspective which doesn't give any power to us as thinkers using the law, so to students. For example, students think, if they think of law as related to power, they don't think of themselves as having any power. Whereas using the knowledge that law gives you, you have infinite perspectives on the world, right? And I think opening that up to more perspectives, more perspectives than that, even from other disciplines, enhances that uh, power even more. Because when you understand things through law, combined with other uh, perspectives, you have new viewpoints on things. And the way law works is, if you can imagine it in a different way, you can recast the law, you can reinvent the law, reinterpret the law. And that's a power that we all have, students, academics, practicing lawyers, judges, legislators. You know, it's because law is a way of knowing, we can re-know the world in new creative ways. And the more creative we can get using different disciplines, the greater potential we have, I think, as lawyers, as, as creative thinkers. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Luke. I think that a lot of people who probably don't have a background in law consider that law is actually something that's maybe quite boring. Uh, certainly that's the way that doctrinal law or black letter law is perceived by the outside world. And lawyers are often considered as people who are quite inaccessible or quite uh, difficult to understand. And this idea plagues law a little bit. But in my opinion, this is perhaps a little bit of a misconception, considering that actually what makes law all the more accessible and interesting is when you put it in context. And that's what this whole podcast is about. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting uh, perspective on that, about the, the unknowable nature of law and people from outside of the law missing that and um, or missing the essence of law, rather. I think one thing that's really interesting goes, goes back to the second question, actually, is that people think of, the, of legal study and legal knowledge and legal practice as somehow having to be identical to our idealized vision of the law itself, which is about rules which are knowable. But of course, we know that law, it's, law when you study law or know law or practice law, it's the exact opposite. It's playing with the law. It's playing with that certainty. It's reinventing that certainty. And that's what we have. We, all the listeners to this podcast as well, as, as legal thinkers, we have that. We can bring that creativity uh, to, to the game, I guess, to the table. What I found was so interesting in what you just said is that you see some sort of, um, if I, I, I put on unfortunately negative spin, is that we have some limitations uh, as lawyers. There, there's some boundaries to our discipline. And uh, in order for us to go beyond that, we, we kind of need to reach out to other disciplines and um, to, to enter into partnerships, uh, so to speak. So I don't know if you could unpack a little bit what we mean um, as researchers or as legal scholars about socio-legal studies. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, sure. So I think it's a it's a really um, opposite question, really, following the previous one, because we talk about lots of different perspectives, but a real dominant trend within the last 50 or 60 years uh, within legal thought has, has been the social legal movement, which is to think there is particular value in combining legal perspectives uh, which with those which come from either social theory or sociological method. And th there's no one single answer to the question of what social legal uh, study is or social legal theory, but I think there are a group of, um, of different movements which are kind of overlapping, uh, all of which um, have a lot of value and bring a lot uh, 
to the table in terms of uh, knowledge, although they do challenge some of our uh, beliefs about um, about legal knowledge and about the law itself, and that's what makes them valuable. And it might sometimes mean we have to decide whether we agree or we don't agree with, with the outcomes, and that, that's fun as well, of course. So I would say broadly what the social legal uh, movement is about is to say that pure legal method, that kind of knowing through rules that I talked about before, however creative and infinite it is, as you say, Sabrina, it's, it's not going to give you everything because it's limited in the types of knowledge it can give you. And in particular, what that kind of knowledge can't bring is, I guess, empirical certainty, right? It can't, it can tell us about how the world should be or might be or could be reimagined or should have been or anything like that can tell us all of those things in idealized ways or imagined ways, but it can't tell us how the world is or was. We have methods for knowing that we have different ways of understanding the world. And I guess that's broken up generally, this is a slightly controversial thing to say, but I think, I think it's right into two different types of knowing. One is about social social theory, generally, right? So ways of understanding uh, how the human world works, not through how it should work, which is what lawyers do, but how it does work, right? How humans interact with each other. And some social theory, um, some very dominant social theory of Weber and Durkheim, for example, does also try and engage with, with laws and, and, that, and rules. But generally, it's not so interested in that. It's interested in how humans understand their own action or act in, in conjunction with each other, even without understanding their action. So one branch of social legal theory really tries to embrace that part of our understanding of the world and says, how can we understand legal systems and societies governed by legal systems um, in a way which goes beyond our simple understanding of the content of the laws? I think that's one trend. I, I think actually the more important trend, and it's the one we usually uh, are hinting at when we're talking about social legal studies, is something more what we might call methodological. It's, it's a way of understanding uh, or a way of investigating law using the methods of sociology. Um, so broadly, um, the sociological parts of social sciences use methods which we would more usually associate with natural sciences, physics and chemistry and biology, where, where we look at things, we watch them, we observe them, and we try and explain what we observe. Right? And from that, we draw some conclusions. It's what we were calling empirical study. Lawyers and legal knowing are not well suited to that kind of um, knowledge or investigation when they only use legal methods. Sociological methods give us an insight into those things. If we want to ask, therefore, what is the effect of a particular law? What is the impact of a particular law? We can't use legal methods alone. I would say it would be a very vain lawyer, indeed, who doesn't care about the effect of laws. They, they are, the only thing they care about is how they imagine the laws to work. Right? We, I talked for a long time before about how amazing it is that we can reimagine the world as lawyers. But if that's all we want to do, if the only thing we want to do is to reimagine the world, we're living in a dream world. We also want to know whether it works, whether it happens, whether the impact that we expect it does happen, whether the way people use those laws is what we anticipated. Legal methods are not going to tell us those things, right? So the judgment in a case is not going to tell us that, for example, using legal methods or a, a mono, monograph written by a brilliant legal scholar is not going to tell us that thing if they only use um, legal methods. What's going to tell us that is the use of sociological method, using observation of specific things. Um, and that can be done in lots of different ways, using data, using interviews, um, using other kinds of ways of building metrics and data sets, using 
certain kinds of um, economics, parts of economics which use sociological method, for example. Uh, economics is a, is a branch of sociology after all. Um, that's also a controversial thing to say. Um, yeah, so I would say that's broadly where social legal uh, theory of social legal studies fit into the world. And I think it's very important for us to understand it as not the same as legal study, even if we take a very broad vision of what legal study is, and we take a quite a, an expansive vision, I don't think legal study alone encapsulates or captures social legal study. We have to think of it as something as being combined with a different mode of knowledge. Now, there are some people, I think, uh, going back over the last 110, 120 years, maybe, um, who think really not all legal knowledge is in somehow social legal. Um, and uh, so it can go back to the early legal realist movement and, and other things like this, where you say, no, we just have to look at what outcomes of things are. And that's how we understand law. I think that's completely wrong. I think that's completely wrong. And that collapses social legal and legal and that they are actually two different ways of knowing the world. And if we, if we reject one and just, and say, and no, we're only going to keep one of them, whether that's the legal perspective or the social legal perspective, we're never going to embrace uh, a true attempt to understand the law and its impact. Um, so, so that's how I would define social legal studies. That's that's very interesting to me. Um, you point a lot at, at, at sociology in a broad term, but I, just to, to clarify for for our listeners, I think it's important to understand that we talk about social sciences and law, right? When we talk about social legal studies, so we're not limiting ourselves to sociology or economics, but also history or anthropology, um, for for example, for an ethnographic understanding of uh, certain rules, etc. Uh, I understand what you're saying when you say collapsing one and the other. Uh, would be uh, kind of working to a disadvantage in terms of our uh, intellectual enterprise. But but in a way, isn't um, sociolegal study simply answering a very complex questions? Because we have very complex issues in modern or, or all types of societies. Uh, and therefore, we need other tools than just the black letter law. And we need this sociolegal approach, like you said, the methods to understand very complex questions and complex context. I think it's a really interesting question. I, I don't think social legals... So yeah, I completely agree, but I think there's a limit to, to what we can do with it. So we definitely need it, uh, whether or not our society is complex. But I think the, the danger of collapsing uh, disciplines still exists there, even if we embrace the idea that we need it. Um, because it can't tell us everything. It can't, for example, tell us what the uh, correct doctrinal approach to consideration in contract lawyers, for example. It can't tell us that. Those are moral legal questions. They are not purely social legal questions. And that if we collapse everything into social legal, we actually end up hiding the moral questions behind um, the analytical approaches uh, of yeah, ethnographic, sociological, anthropological, and all of the other approaches that you've talked about that have developed over the last 150 years or so. That those areas suggest that we can, if you take them on their own, if we were to embrace those as the way to answer complex legal questions and those alone, we, we would be um, marginalizing the, the, the normative questions which lawyers are actually trained to, uh, trained to answer best. Whether lawyers know that they're trained to answer those questions best is another question, of course. But I, I, I think recognizing the ability of social legal perspectives to provide um, critical analysis, more sophisticated analysis, Uh, allows us to expand our perspectives on law. I don't think it allows us to better understand existing questions. It allows us to understand more questions and the answers to those questions. 
that, that, that would be my uh, that, that would be my viewpoint. But there are lots of legal theorists who I think would argue in a more or less low-key way that it, something along the line of what you've suggested, that Sabrina. I think there are a lot of people who would say, no, 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 really, ultimately, when we want to understand complexity of law, we need a social legal perspective. I think I, I would push back quite strongly on that. I, I think there are certain elements of legal knowledge which are inherently legal and that they do overlap with other disciplines, but they overlap more with the with political theory, moral philosophy and ethics. And, and I, I don't think social sociological perspectives understood in a broad sense will, will ever help us uh, directly answer those questions. They will tell us the outcome and impact of those things, which we need to feed into the answering of our questions. I think in the end, human... Uh, endeavors like law require us to take responsibility for our own decisions as moral decisions and delegating an answer to complex questions to social legal analysis is a dereliction of our of our duty collectively to say this is what we believe in and this is what we think the law should be um, and although we want to be informed by social legal analysis we can't uh, we can't just pass the book to social legal analysis Thanks, Luke. I think that's really interesting and also leads us on really nicely to our next question. I mean, we've talked so much about law not being in a vacuum and, you know, connecting it with other disciplines. So I wondered if we could ask you if you believe that interdisciplinarity, which has been um, become rather something really important and very, very um, prominent in, in legal studies over the last couple of years, and that is, you know, law coupled with any other disciplines. Um, do you think that interdisciplinarity necessarily leads to a more critical study of the law? And perhaps why or why not? I mean, I, you might have touched a little bit on this, but maybe you could draw, draw that out a little bit more, because I think that, um, you know, like I say, when you first start studying law, you are taught all the black letter stuff and it kind of feels like you don't have very much um, capacity to, to connect it with anything else. Um, and I suppose this is what we're kind of thinking about today as to whether connecting it and, you know, putting it in, in a bit more of a context actually helps us be more critical in our study of the law. Yeah, I think it's a it's a brilliant question. So yeah, I mean, I have a very simple answer to the question whether it whether interdisciplinarity makes us more critical as lawyers. Yes, absolutely. It it provides us with an Archimedean standpoint. It provides us with a standpoint outside of our established truths, which develop within our legal perspectives. And one thing about I mean, use a needlessly long word, but I'll explain it in a moment. One one thing about um, epistemology, one thing about our, our ways of knowing, our theories of knowing is that they, they become uh, dogmatic. That however much we think of ourselves as capable of thinking freely, as soon as we think in a certain mode, we, we become to some extent a slave to that mode of thinking. However free thinking we think we are. What providing an alternative perspective does, as well as allowing us to answer much more complex questions, as Sabrina says, is it also allows us to look from outside. So if we wanted to say, well, do we think... Uh, going back to my uh, example before, do we think the law on consideration is right within English contract law? Taking a legal perspective alone, it becomes very difficult, it becomes self-referential. You say, well, you know, we have these different theories of contract, the relational theory, the will theory, all of these things. Yeah, we can make sense of consideration in, in ways there using those kind of legal theories of it. But what if we found out, for example, that loads of people who are engaging in commercial contracts on an ongoing basis will come up with arrangements and don't give any consideration, for example. What if we can study that and look at building contracts, for example, 
that's, that's not a coincidence. I've chosen that example because it's true. There are lots of contractual variations which don't have consideration. And we, we find out that actually maybe a large percentage of those contracts have no consideration given for variations. That, that has to influence our perspective. That we've, we've just been given some empirical data using our new perspectives, our social legal perspectives, we've been given something uh, which will at least allow us to, to say, well, look, these are contractual arrangements. They are subject to contract law. Uh, people think of themselves as subject to contract law, yet they're not actually adhering to all of the tenets of one of the fundamental doctrines of contract. That at least gives us a perspective on where we think we should be going with those kinds of viewpoints. And that, that, that's a very simple version. In, in a way, you know, we, we don't get morally uh, uh, het up about the question of commercial contracts within the building trade, which is why I chose it as an example. We could choose much more emotive ones as well. And what it would allow us to do then, taking these different perspectives, is it allows us to give an informed vision of that critical perspective that we all want. So we often ask our students to be critical, right? And students look at us quite rightly, I think, like we're mad. So what do you mean be critical? You know, I'm taking all of these different ideas, I'm trying to make sense of it, and then you're telling me to do something completely different and now, now be critical. It's like, well, what non-legal perspectives combined with legal perspectives allow us to do is to give that criticality from an, import, an informed viewpoint. It helps us understand the law better. It helps us understand where the law should be going. And it helps us convert those perspectives into legal viewpoints as well. I, I might flip the question around slightly and say it also makes us better doctrinal lawyers. So it does make us more critical. But in fact, law is an open form of knowledge, right? If you look at how judges reason in, in high um, level judgments, in appellate judgments, in different legal systems, they will often draw upon non-legal rhetoric, much more than law students are brave enough to do. And they, these are judges, the best lawyers, right? Apparently, allegedly, right? That they will draw on all these different perspectives to justify a legal outcome because they will draw upon their slightly non-legal perspectives to argue that, for example, the, the current legal analysis, which is usually used, is slightly wrong, or it could be revisited, or that it's correct, right? And that you can kind of combine that critical perspective from outside of law with your legal viewpoints to give you a better doctrinal analysis as well. So I would say there's something about law, uh, this is definitely not me saying this, I'm borrowing this line of someone else, which is epistemically open, right? It's open to new ways of knowledge, right? But we can't get those from within law itself. We have to get them from outside. We have to get them from interdisciplinary perspectives. But unlike a lot of other disciplines, law is open to that. You know, if you make an argument and combine it with some legal sources, and you make an argument that the law should be slightly differently interpreted because of something else, because of some data you have, that makes sense to us as lawyers. We don't say, well, you know, that's, I just don't understand what that means. Whereas if you said to a mathematician, well, you know, that some makes sense, but I've also got this other data from this other thing I want to influence you with. I say, well, that's, that's irrelevant to me. That doesn't fit in my equation. But law does have that openness. You know, it's not just a, a form of um, um, geometry that fits together without any outside uh, influence. So I think it absolutely gives us a more critical perspective on law, but it also gives us a, a better doctrinal understanding of law. And, and I think in a way that helps us understand that being critical is not necessarily not being a lawyer looking at it from outside or doing something else. It's using the tools of other perspectives to be a better lawyer. So then on, on that note of this idea of, you know, being critical and thinking critically and critically evaluating um, questions in the law, um, how would you explain what has become somewhat of a, you know, quite popular movement in legal studies that scholars have labeled critical legal theory or, you know, critical legal studies? What do you kind of understand by that? 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. So it's a little bit like the social legal studies question we had before. And it's, it's um, probably uh, named slightly less often than social legal studies, but almost as, as often. It's one of the, the, the dominant um, trends within, within legal thoughts, in particular in, in universities over the last 50 years or so. Um, so broadly, what critical legal theory does is to, is to really embrace the idea that there are certain things within legal knowledge in the way we've described it here, um, that are taken for granted. And that to have a certain perspective on law, a certain critical perspective on law, is we have to deconstruct those things. So that rather than taking it for granted that, for example, we have a constitution or we have persons who can make private law arrangements within, uh, within the law, or that we have certain institutions like marriage or employment contracts or these major institutions of the employment of, of, uh, of the legal system, rather than saying these are the tools which we work with as kind of creative lawyers, we say, no, let's ask ourselves where these things come from, what these things mean, what hidden power dynamics exist within them. So when we say that some people have legal personhood and some people don't have legal personhood in certain contexts, why is that? Where does that come from? What power does that reflect? In a way, what critical legal theory does is to kind of collapse the difference between legal perspectives and political perspectives. And says all legal questions are political questions. These are all questions. It takes us back to the idea of law as power and politics that we said that some students will, will embrace very uh, readily. And although I said before, that law is, is a form of knowledge. I think the critical legal theory movement has done something really valuable because it, it forces us to take one step back from that kind of knowledge. So well, what are the things you're taking for granted in that knowledge? You know, it's all very well saying well, it's this knowledge we can play with and we can do creative things with, but you're still using the tools that law gives you, right? So well, rather than using that to think critically about how we could change those things in a small way, let's think in a big way. And then, well, what, what you know, what, why should we have a legal system which is regulated by a constitutional form of certain types? Why should we think of the rule of law as part of that? Where did those ideas come from? What does that reflect? What deeper power dynamics does it reflect? And the reason it does that, this kind of history of ideas idea, is it really embraces um, critical theory movements from outside of the law, which preceded the critical legal theory movement of the previous uh, 10 or 20 years, in particular, uh, post-structuralist and post-modernist movements, which really tried to deconstruct our knowledge rather than to say, uh, you know, there's kind of a logical form of the world or there's more of an instinctive form of uh, understanding the world. Those are kind of the pre-modern and the modern ways of knowing the world. We said, no, 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 let's deconstruct all of it. Let's try and work out uh, what kinds of knowledge and power we're hiding behind the, the concepts we use to understand the world. And critical legal theory, in a way, is, is just a, a legal version of that. And because law is inherently made of different concepts that we use to build our legal knowledge, it's particularly well suited to that form of deconstruction because we can, we, we can go back to the very uh, tenets of our legal education, the first things we learned in the first few weeks when we were being indoctrinated without realizing it, and saying, where, where did these ideas come from? Why? Whose interest is this in? It doesn't necessarily mean we get universally valid knowledge through critical legal theory, but it means we at least question some of the uh, perspectives uh, that we are, we are handed. It, critical legal theory doesn't really give you any outcomes. It gives you a set of perspectives and a set of tools to maybe take a further step back. Um, it, I wouldn't say it has um, the, uh, the user-friendly nature of social legal perspectives or the kind of anthropological or ethnographic perspectives that Sabrina was talking about before, which really give us a method for, for knowing things that gives us results. 
but it gives us more of a, a mode or a mood of, of knowing the law, of kind of somehow um, questioning the law and its legitimacy and it, the concepts which are embodied within the law and their legitimacy as well. I mean, I, I, I sometimes take issue with critical legal studies because it, it has a very conservative perspective of the law. It assumes that the law is inherently um, kind of reflecting power structures and that people who use the law are idiots and that there's no way of them reinventing the law for themselves. And I, I, as become obvious, I, I don't think those things are true. I think law is quite an emancipatory way of knowing things. And I think to some extent, critical legal theory um, is quite simplistic and conservative in its vision of the law. It, it shares a lot with a kind of reactionary conservative political philosophy, in, in my view, uh, which is a controversial thing to say, but I, I would say that uh, wholeheartedly. But nonetheless, it can feel very empowering to, to say, like, let's step back behind the law. What it assumes, of course, is you can't do those things from within the law. And I think maybe we overstate uh, that. And I think a kind of a, combina- a kind of a combination of sometimes taking this outside a critical legal perspective and sometimes taking this kind of normative knowledge perspective is always good. A kind of reflective equilibrium between the two uh, approaches is probably a healthy one for everyone to take. But everyone should definitely um, kind of embrace critical legal studies to some extent. I think it makes you a better human being, but not too much because it makes you a nihilist. When talking about law, norms, and the justice system, um, many people will believe that law and justice are really uh, essentially synonyms. But would you think that that is actually correct? Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, isn't it? Like whether law and justice are synonyms. So, um, I mean, obviously, we don't mean synonyms from a perspective of how the words are used, because we know that can't be true, because people will often talk about the law being unfair and uh, things. So we, we know that they can't be literally synonyms. But in, in a kind of more metaphorical sense, they're often used as synonymous, right? Especially when you talk amongst lawyers, you know, we talk about just outcomes and then we start talking about ethics and law and, and things. And we, we often like lilt into using them in similar ways. And in, in particular, given what I said before about law is a way of knowing the world through normative, uh, a normative lens, it, it does seem that, that law and justice must be li- linked in some kind of important way. If, if law is a way of knowing the world through using moral concepts and ideas of should and obligation and ought, law and justice hopefully must be linked in some structural kind of way. They at least use the same kinds of tools. And I think that's the way in which they are synonymous, right? So that law uses uh, the, the concepts and techniques which are used also when we talk about things which are fair and unfair. So when we say you should do this, you must do this, it's your obligation, and so on, we could be talking about justice or we could be talking about law. Right? But we know that we have different kinds of shoulds and oughts and musts. We have legal ones and we have uh, moral ones. Right? And, and we hope that they overlap sometimes. But, law, but in order for us to use them in different ways, they must be different. Right? They, they, they must be different things. So we talk about justice through the law. So we talk about has there been a process uh, which we could describe as uh, as just, and we often mean has the legal process itself been followed. But that doesn't tell us anything about whether it's actually fair. And it especially doesn't tell us anything about whether the law itself is fair. Um, although we could use the language of should and ought and must and obligation to describe the content of the law, we might say that the law is nonetheless completely unfair. And I think where there is more of an overlap than lots of people would like to Uh, recognize is that in modern legal systems, there are pervasive principles, which I think are difficult to distance from justice. So we have fundamental principles of 
equal treatment and um, natural justice um, and all kinds of grounds of things like judicial review and the general principles of law, which uh, use lots of different legal systems and constitutional values. But and you may, depending on your perspective, also then include things like constitutional rights within that and they and trickle down into the legal system. And we would say, well, that they find their way through legal reasoning into a lot of laws, at least hopefully. And, that, and therefore, if, if legal systems are inherently infused with some of these general perspectives of justice, there must at least in modern constitutional legal systems be some kind of aspirational link between law and justice. But that doesn't get really round the basic problem that they're not the same thing, right? Law and justice are not the same thing because I've had to build this very big cathedral of an answer to say why in a modern legal system, in some ways, justice does find its way into the law. If I have to make all of those kind of uh, efforts to make that clear link, it, it, it means that they, they can't be uh, the, the, the same thing, but they share a language, they share aspirations, they share some parts of our um, kind of ideological and political thinking as well, and we talk about law and justice at the same time. So they're all part of similar aspirations. But there are lots of people who, for example, will have strong beliefs about justice, but very, um, and positive beliefs about justice, but very pessimistic beliefs about law. For example, I think it's a, you know, it's a tool uh, to oppress people or something, and vice versa as well. There are some people who believe, you know, very deeply in the pro- processes of law, but, you know, would be quite uh, skeptical if you said, well, you know, what is justice? That's our justice is nothing, but, you know, but the law exists. You know, so there, there are different perspectives on this, I think, and uh, something maybe we'll um, we'll explore uh, explore now. Yes, yes. Uh, well, that's that drives me to my next question. So um, they are sim- similar; they they share commonalities, but they are different. Uh, I think it's pretty clear from what you're saying. What distinctions would you draw between them? Um, and following up on that, what are the various forms of justice? If there are various forms, um, if you could explain that. Yeah, sure. So and what distinctions are there between uh, law and justice? I, I guess justice is an ideal. Right? Justice is an ideal. It's a way which we have at the back of our mind when we, when we react to something and we say, for example, it's unfair or unjust or unethical, we, we're relying on some kind of assumed conception um, of an ideal world. Right? Even just in a very specific context of where some, a child takes another child's ice cream, we say, oh, that's unfair. Right? We, we have an idea that somehow we have some kind of ideal, not fully articulated, that there's a world which is more just than that. Law shares, to some extent, those kind of ideological uh, and idealized visions, but it's in a very different way. It's within an institutional framework. Right? We, we have a framework which exists. Law exists within a, what we might call a municipal or institutionalized system. It, it uses its own uh, uh, legal concepts which already exist there. And although we might hope that those achieve visions of justice and we might use arguments from the perspective of justice to interpret the law, we can see that law is much more self-contained. It might be located within a particular community or a particular history or a particular geographical area or a particular discipline or a particular area of human exchange or a particular um, kind of religious belief or or something like that. That law exists within those kind of more located uh, areas. Justice is a more... Um, is a more lofty, idealized uh, thing. And I think that's the main distinction. Justice is the idea, something we are aspiring to and that we can compare things to. Law is a more located thing, uh, which might aspire towards justice, but might also not achieve it. 
just as in is in itself is just it is a is an idealized vision. Law can achieve or not achieve justice. I would say that law, law is a thing in the real world, which has some kind of um, aspirational components. Justice is a thing in the imagined world. So you asked a, a separate part of the question, uh, which is what are different forms of justice which uh, exist. So I think primarily when we're looking at this from not from a legal perspective, but from the perspective of a legally trained audience, I think the most important initial distinction to draw is that between kinds of justice which lawyers usually think of and then maybe other loftier forms of justice. So justice in the legal context is usually about procedural justice, right? It's the following of legal process, the application of legal rules, uh, the, the use of those rules to come to the, uh, the, the right outcome using those principles. Um, and that's, uh, that's absolutely uh, fine, but it's, of course, contingent on those located legal institutions that we were talking about before. Um, on the other hand, uh, within this distinction, there is, there is everything else going on with justice. There is what we would call political philosophy, it's theories of justice. There are visions of the world as a just place or as an unjust place. Um, and this is, this is what fl political philosophers do. This is uh, political philosophers try and imagine uh, and explain uh, why certain kinds of society are fairer than other kinds of society. And this is something that's been, uh, since we've in invented, we as human beings invented uh, written language, we've been recording conversations and thoughts about justice. Um, so I won't go into what famous uh, Greek political philosophers said about justice, but they give very similar accounts of what justice is to us. So they say it's you know everyone being getting what everyone getting what they deserve, for instance, is a very uh, common turn of phrase which goes back to certain Greek theorists. And I would say we would still uh, use that kind of analysis of what justice is. So what what justice is outside of the procedural uh, vision of justice for for lawyers is what we, we might call substantive justice distributive justice, right? So who gets what? Who gets what in society, uh, in a community or in, in the world? And we can look at this at different levels of abstraction. Uh, we could see how we distribute the time that we speak in this conversation, who gets most time, or who gets all of the crisps which are in the cupboard in the house, or who gets uh, all of the wealth which is generated in society, who gets the opportunities to share in that wealth, which people from which parts of the world get the opportunities to get that and so on and so forth. You can do it at different levels of, of abstraction. All of those kinds of justice are yeah, what I would call distributive justice questions. And that they're in a way much more exciting um, versions of, uh, of, of justice. And maybe, uh, yeah, maybe we'll come on to talk about those now. Yes, because these are the type of conceptions of justice I'm very much interested in personally, as you know, Luke and Adrian. Uh, more on that in the next episode. But um, let's talk about different conceptions. If you can amuse us a little bit and tell us about different conceptions of distributive justice, uh, just to give us a kind of a, a taste uh, of what's to come next, Luke. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. So I won't go too much into too much depth. But I think one way of thinking about it for um, uh, for the purposes of this conversation is. We, we talk a lot about political ideology, uh, right? So there are lots of things with, with isms in, you know, liberalism, libertarianism, communism, socialism, fascism, and other things. Most of those are reflections of theories of justice. They have a particular account of how society should be organized in terms of how human beings should be organized, who gets what and on what basis. Those are theories of justice. Right. So um, we, we would have some modern dominant modern theories of justice, a kind of egalitarian liberalism, for example, which is 
that everyone uh, gets an equal opportunity regardless of traits which they are not able to control because they are beyond their control. So it's not fair that they should uh, impact upon their life chances. Uh, but those same egalitarian conceptions of, of liberalism generally tend to argue that it's okay if you end up getting more or less than other people, as long as everyone benefits from the whole uh, outcome. For example, it's a very famous uh, theory of justice by, by John Rawls, probably the most uh, influential political theorist of the last 60 years, 70 years, at least in the English-speaking world. Um, that's, that's just a random example. What The reason I, I use it is because it's quite a simple one to understand what a theory of justice is. It, it, it gives an account of why our society is fair or unfair, how it might become fairer or less fair, using some reasoned principles and gives an explanation of why that society would be more or less fair. Um, so, for example, Marxist theories of uh, justice, for example, are based on a moral, basic moral argument that when you work, you generate the value through your labor, and therefore anyone who profits from your labor who didn't put in that labor is uh, alienating uh, your, your profit from that labor and taking it away from you unfairly. And that drives a whole uh, communist and social democratic tradition of theories of justice for the last 150 years, for example. It comes from a very specific uh, moral argument. So what makes a theory of justice is a moral argument of uh, its base, right? And most, so you asked, like, how do they translate into law? What relationship do they have with law? Most uh, constitutional orders, or as we might call them, legal systems, will, will rest inherently on a combination of different theories of justice. So, for example, the modern trend of constitutional democracy uh, rests at least in part on the idea that each member of society, or at least the citizens within that society, have certain inherent values uh, connected to them, or certain units of value, which means that we should protect their value by um, attributing to them certain rights. They might be kind of non-interference rights, so people can't stop you from expressing yourself or uh, having certain political beliefs or whatever it is, or they might be uh, certain substantive rights, so that you have a right to access certain things, certain goods, which allow you to live at least a, a basic level of uh, life which reflects uh, your essence, so maybe to education or health. And then there will be maybe more ambitious versions of that which go beyond liberal constitutionalism, which would uh, try and be more egalitarian in the way they uh, spread uh, the basic goods of society, so giving a more um, ambitious access to things like education and material wealth uh, and stuff. And they will be based on a different vision of what justice is. So what, what is justice? Justice is a, um, a vision of how we organize society based on moral argument, I would say. Now, how is that? How do they translate into uh, law? Well, all law, by definition, is a translation of a theory of justice. Every single legal uh, iteration is inherently the translation of someone's vision of what is fair. Even if it's just come about by somehow drifting into a certain outcome through starry diseases, even if it's through that, somehow embodied within that outcome is a vision of fairness. Right? We said before, or I said at least, that law is a way of knowing things through rules. Well, all rules, at least rules which involve uh, important things between human beings, not rules of sports and things, rules inv involving uh, actually you know, real things in the world, that they involve decisions about who gets what. And they are therefore visions of, of morality and therefore of justice, right? So how do they translate into law all the time, right? So th this has an important consequence for anyone who's interested in law. It's when you understand the law, you understand justice. And when you understand justice, 
you understand law or you understand what law could be. So if you have a particular perspective on what is fair, you can also reverse engineer from that what you think the law should be and vice versa. So theories of justice are often seen as quite distant from law, right? And often even, let's be completely honest, if we're talking to some of our colleagues or students are talking to some of our colleagues and they talk about, oh, well, you know this and I don't think this is fair and and, do, and our colleagues might, you know, have you know, good intentions. They might say, well, don't, don't worry too much about that. Just focus on what the law says. I think this is really damaging to us as legal thinkers because what we're really getting an insight into is what the law is codifying, what moral principles the law is codifying there. It's not, it's not a coincidence that the law has certain forms. It's a translation of a particular uh, vision of fairness. And I said before that I don't think it's right to always think of law as a, um, a simple translation of questions of power and politics. But I do think that law is always a translation of a vision of justice, even if it's by accident and no one intended it to be the case. Law is always a kind of institutionalized uh, version of a vision of how the, 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 the world or society or a particular part of society uh, should be organized. And therefore, uh, before, um, Adrian, you asked a question about uh, what interdisciplinarity can bring us as, uh, as legal thinkers. Everything I said there about critical perspectives is multiplied at least tenfold when we're talking about justice, because theories of justice allow us to do amazing things with law, because we can explain to someone the consequences of what they're saying, the implications of what they're saying when they express the law. And we can also do something else. We can take our own visions of fairness and translate them into um, into law. So this idea of how the conceptions of justice translate into law, which was your question, Sabrina, actually can have a, a different connotation. It's how can we translate our own visions of justice into law? And the, the law is the only thing that we really have that can give a, a manifestation of of justice, I would say, without law, unless we completely radically change the way we organize our society into a completely unrecognizable way, the only way conceptions of justice get into uh, the real world is, is through law, I would say. And we can see that very clearly if we read a constitution, it reads like a, a document about justice, right? whether it achieves that is a different question, but that's when we need all of those social legal techniques that we were talking about before to analyze whether it actually does it or not. Absolutely. I think that's very interesting. It's a very interesting point because often students are very hung up on the fact that there's self-interest uh, when the law is created and uh, all the workings between law and politics are pointed out and um, the absence of justice. So I think uh, I couldn't agree more with you, uh, Luke, obviously, uh, but I think we don't have time for this in this episode to, to explore this, but this is something definitely we will be looking at in the rest uh, of our episodes. So I'll hand over to Adrian. Um, I think she has another question for you. I do. And I think it's really interesting that you say uh, or you bring this all into a bit more of like, let's say, a reality, because I think sometimes what we can get hung up on is, you know, the theories and, uh, you know, Sabrina and, and yourself, Luke, you're both, you know, experts in, you know, theories of justice and, and legal theory. Um, but I wondered if I could ask that uh, from, a, I suppose, a slightly different point of view, although something you've touched on, now that we've seen the relationship between law and justice, as you put it, um, Luke, um, and of course, all the other disciplines that we've been talking about um, in this episode today, um, I wonder if you could maybe talk to us a little bit more about how you think law is actually able or perhaps unable sometimes to articulate um, specific policy aims and what relationship the law um, kind of entertains between public policy and politics. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a really interesting question, I think. And um, I, I, I think um, cards on the table, I think it's very difficult to give a clear answer here. And I think in, in the modern world, maybe we take a step back, 
we, we want to be very technocratic, right? We want to achieve very specific things almost in a scientific way. And, and law has taken on a certain form, although we, we pretend to our students when we're indoctrinating them in the first couple of years that law is all about these general principles and private law and all this stuff. Most law that is made now is what we would really call regulation. It's very specific uh, legislation, often secondary legislation, um, made by the effectively the executive branch of government um, and the delegated um, powers, uh, which regulates very specific parts of the world, maybe regulates finance or healthcare or, uh, or elements of sport or um, the use of roads or construction processes or something. And it's trying to achieve these really, really specific, uh, min- minute outcomes. Right? And th- this is um, really maybe where law, as we imagine it, and law as it is, have maybe become completely separated, especially we as legal theorists, legal scholars, legal students, especially as we imagine it, we're actually really far away from the reality of what law is. And the the way in which law now tries to achieve um, uh, policy goals, so policy goals just being, you know, we want to achieve this very specific thing. We want fewer accidents in workplaces, for example. That could be a policy goal, right? There could be a way of achieving that is to say, well, there are some general standards of responsibility, for example, that's what we would expect of people who've studied tort law and and maybe employment law, right? Um, or we could regulate exactly the type of clothing that's meant to be worn within different types of work sites and different inspection regimes and different reporting mechanisms and different um, ways of punishing non-adherence and all of these different things. And one of the things that's interesting about the second approach is it, it tries to achieve very specific policy aims, right? legislative aims, but never actually articulates them. It's is very different to how law works, right? So the way modern law tends to work through regulation is, is through this hyper-specialized way, which is almost unrecognizable to these kind of romantic visions of law, which I've been guilty of um, peddling during our conversation. And uh, so to some extent, I've been dis- disingenuous, not, not deliberately, but I've been disingenuous and maybe idealizing uh, law. And one of the uh, reasons, I think, law is not able to achieve these kind of grandiose uh, outcomes is because the way law is used by uh, by legislators has become something quite different. It's that it says, right, we're going to use the tool of law to influence the the behavior of very specific people in very specific circumstances to see if we can achieve very specific policy aims, right? I, I think that makes... It could succeed or not. We, we also we have tools to know whether it succeeds. We, they are social legal tools. We can study, you know, is the outcome what we expected? Yes or no. But within that, we lose that kind of big uh, aspiration to achieve justice through law. We no longer have access to those rules. We no longer have a shared vocabulary between justice and law. Right? When we're talking about regulations, we don't often talk about shoulds and oughts and obligations and principles and constitutional values. And we find it very difficult to actually articulate um, kind of lofty aims about, so Sabrina, obviously lots of your work is on is on uh, healthcare policy and, and the law. You know, we, we can talk in really big ways about justice and access to healthcare and, and distributive justice. But when we get into the, the minutiae of uh, procurement rules within healthcare, we, we don't really have a shared vocabulary, right? And, and I think that's really interesting for several reasons when we're thinking about it from the perspective of this uh, podcast is it means that our legal tools and the ones that we share with principles of justice and morality are no longer enough. 
but we can't rely on them. We need the kinds of tools that Sabrina was talking about before, about giving us that insight into a detailed world. We, we need to have our legal skills in the background, and then we need to go in and say, okay, what is the outcome of this? What are we trying to achieve? Let's interview people. Let's talk to people. Let's try and work out what the impact is. Um, and then maybe we would say, let's bring law back to a more general set of principles. Or we would say, well, no, actually, that kind of law is, is gone. We should forget about that. That's just some kind of romantic ideal. And that we actually live in a world of, of, of regulation. Uh, but I would doubt, I doubt that that world will achieve the goals that it wants to, because you'd have to revisit all of those uh, regulations again and again. I think one of the interesting things, to come back then to your general question, Adrian, is um, about the relationship then between public policy and, and politics and law is that we live in a, in a kind of, a, this is a non-legal statement, we live in a kind of a cultural environment in which the lawmaker is expected to solve all problems all the time. We have a problem, somehow solve it. And the only tool they really have, well, they have two tools. One are kind of uh, economic and financial tools that are really going to give you a, a lot in terms of changing people's behavior, or they're more about governing the economy, or they have regulations. They have the tools of, of legislation and they try and overachieve with, with legislation. And it means that we've um, law is now used to achieve everything in society, whereas maybe lots of things was, probably wasn't the legislature who should have been trying to achieve them in the first place. That we, it probably shows that we've gone wrong somewhere. That's a, that's a political statement on, on my part. But law has almost got lost in, the, uh, in its, its own detail. And I think it's very interesting that none of your students will have studied any regulation at any point. They never will have studied any regulation. And probably the, the three of us, you know, in some sense, experts in law, we've studied very little regulation, although we work in areas where there is regulation. Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing, I think. So th this is maybe an answer which has taken us down an unexpected road, but it's, it's about the culture of law used by legislators. Right? Law is a, is, a, is a cultural artifact. It's a tool that's used by human beings, in particular people who can make laws. And they have maybe rejected the spirit of law and rejected the spirit of the, um, of the rule of law we talked about before, which, as we said, it's not the same as law, but the rule of law is about general principles which apply to, to people that are easily understandable. Uh, and maybe there is a clash between what we now call public policy and politics on the one hand and the political ideal of, of the rule of law and that those, those two things are not compatible. Um, it's a kind of meandering answer. Um, but I, I think I can bring it back to this conversation quite easily. It's that often when we talk about law, we, we don't have in mind necessarily our public policy aims uh, that, that might be useful for understanding it uh, because we kind of get lost in the detail of things. So I'm, a, I'm an employment lawyer by background as well as a legal philosopher. And I think one of the major uh, things to look at um, when we're, for example, analysing employment policy and employment law and labour law, is to say, well, what's the purpose of all this? What, what are we actually trying to get out of all of this, this cathedral of, of relationship between employer and employee? And if we have that in our mind as an analytical framework to say, well, you know, is, is employment law about more, uh, more fairness at work or more democracy at work or uh, rebalancing power dynamics or is it about economic efficiency or is it about social inclusion or is it about... You know, some kind of egalitarian vision within the workplace between workers or, or something else. If we have all of those things in our mind, we have a framework of analysis, which gives us, again, a kind of a rich vision for understanding the law. And that might give us a, an, another perspective to understand law. It's not really a disciplinary perspective in the ways we were talking about before. So disciplinary from you know, anthropology or sociology or 
kind of various different ethnographic perspectives or, or even from the perspective of, of political philosophy. Instead, it's to say, look, there are certain aims which exist within society, even if we can't fully articulate why they're important. We know they exist. So public policy uh, or political goals um, might be a way for us to understand, well, does law achieve what we want it to achieve? I think one of the problems is we maybe people who make the law get overly excited by public policy aims and maybe get lost in the detail of regulation. That's very interesting. So um, here we are at our last question for you. And um, this is not the easiest one, I would say. But we will end all of our episode by asking our guests, just like you, um, in their opinion, um, does context matter? Uh, and particularly when you look at the law, Luke, um, how would you define law in context? Yeah, I think it's a really brilliant question. Um, so there, there is a paradox in the question, right? Because law, at least within the context in which it operates, the geographical area or the disciplinary area in which it's working, is, is meant to be um, universal, right? It's, it's meant to be the ideal of law is that it's universal and it's neutral. And, um, and in a way, in a similar way to justice and morality, right? We, we're trying to come up with arguments which are valid in all circumstances, or at least in all comparable circumstances. And, and one of the, the powerful things about the emergence of law as an ideal over you know, three millennia or more is, is, is its uh, ability to transcend uh, the particular or, or the contextual. And um, so in, in many ways, when we ask whether context matters in relation to law, it, it seems like a, um, a challenge a challenge to the very thing that gives law its legitimacy, right? So I think this makes it a really powerful question. On, on the other hand, of course, one of the things that modern legal systems uh, try to do is, is to kind of uh, place value on the individual legal person, on that person being the bearer of private law and public law rights, of certain entitlements and values, um, and so on, and placing real value within the legal system on context and contextualization and perspective and all those other things. So it's something that the law has moved, itself moved to in, to embrace. So that's just, uh, I guess, some context for the context question. Um, in my opinion, does context matter? Um, yes, your context is absolutely uh, crucial. So it's crucial from two perspectives. So to understand law, it's important to be able to articulate it from your own perspective. Because as I said before, at the very start, law, law is a way of knowing. Law is a way of knowing the world. And when it's a way of knowing, it's a very subjective thing. It goes through your own mind and is a way of you interpreting the world using those skills. Right? Law is a much more uh, subjective thing as a way of knowing than it is as a kind of as a social or cultural artifact, as an imagined thing that exists in the world that's just there and it governs us. But there it might not be a subjective thing. It's just a thing that exists. But in our own mind and a way of understanding the world and our ability to reinvent the law, context is everything. And being able to understand things from a critical perspective, from our own perspective, becomes absolutely crucial. And if we don't do that, it's really a dereliction of our legal duties. People who are privileged enough to have a legal perspective, if we don't take that contextual uh, and subjective perspective seriously, we'll never really achieve our full uh, legal um, potential. I think that's a slightly different perspective on context and one which is usually hinted at in the question because of course there is the law in context movement which was very much related to the social legal movement which is to say that law can only be understood from legal perspectives it needs to also be understood in the context of thousand other perspectives social legal or critical 
theoretical, political, uh, public policy uh, context. Um, those things are absolutely true. We have to look at law through those things because we have to work out whether law in the way we reimagine it actually does the things we're saying. But as I said before, if we don't have those perspectives from outside the law, we can't hope to be good critical understanders of law from within the law in any case. So I think in a way there is a, a false dichotomy. Although I've tried to defend at some times during this conversation, the idea that there is something worthwhile in just a legal perspective, that legal perspective is inherently informed by a contextual critical analysis of what law is, what it means to us, how we want to reinvent it, what we're trying to say through the law, and what kinds of ways of understanding the law in the real world have influenced our perspective on the law. So for me, from my perspective, at least as a legal theorist, context matters because context gives us that window for us to express ourselves in this legal way of knowing. I think for other people, context will be important uh, for other reasons. I mean, the reason I would take the, the perspective I do is because I, I take seriously the idea that legal knowledge is a powerful thing. And context has to translate itself back into legal knowledge because otherwise our knowledge dissipates. It doesn't get back into the legal world. You know, legal perspectives are, uh, they're emancipatory, they're empowering, but they're on, they only do that thing if you take part in the legal exchange, if you come back and say, here's an alternative legal perspective from this context, from this perspective, rather than thinking of ourselves as, as permanent outsiders. Outsiders should be brought in, into the conversation. Law should be an, an egalitarian and inclusive way of knowing, an inclusive discourse. And that would be impossible if context were excluded because it would, by definition, exclude alternative perspectives by just saying there is a universal um, viewpoint. So it comes right back then to ask about what law is, right? So um, one, one of the things is that I said before, law aspires to universality. But if law is a way of knowing, and it's humans who know things, law can't actually be universal. It's just an aspiration to universal. It's a way of expressing contextualized viewpoints through a shareable form of knowledge. It's universal in the way that everyone can understand it, but it can express lots of different ideas and can be inclusive in some idealized sense, at least, in doing that. So that would be my answer to that question. I look forward to hearing other people's answers to that question, though. It's really good. Definitely. There are going to be a lot more interesting answers to this question over the next couple of episodes. It just leaves us now to thank you very much, Luke, for being our very first guest on the City Law School's Law and Society podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Law and Society podcast brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. We hope you enjoyed it and look forward to you joining us soon for another episode.